Welcome back to Rethinking Politics. We're glad you've joined us. We're in our pursuit to find the truth beyond the rhetoric. Today we're going to be talking education. And we are excited to talk about it. Should be a whole lot of fun. And one of the reasons we wanted to address education is because of the disparities in outcome. Now, we spent a long time talking about disparities and about outcomes in our last episode. If you haven't heard it and you were confused by those terms, please go back and take a look. It, uh, those, those terms make all the difference when we're discussing racism and when we're discussing how things turn out. And when you understand some of the statistics behind it and why outcomes, why there are disparities in outcomes, um, the picture can be a lot clearer for you. It also happens to be a fantastic episode, just as an aside. <laughs> well played. You know, believe it or not, education is very important to a lot of people. You know, I've, I've I don't seen believe people it. get... I, you know, it's funny because we talked about racism last week, but, you know, after racism, I'm not sure there's an issue that people get as upset about as education. You know, consistently, not just right now, but but through the years, you know, go to a PTA meeting and, and hear parents argue about what works and what shouldn't be done and what should be done, and, and you'll see it. The thing is, is that almost everyone can agree that public school is not working. Well, and, and when I say not working, what I really mean is that it's not creating positive outcomes for at least a large number of students who attend. You know, and, and, and there can be disagreements. You know, a lot of people look at, let's say, for example, the graduation rate and say, hey, the graduation rate is actually doing pretty decent. And so maybe maybe public school is, is actually working right now. The thing is, is even if you look at that, at that one statistic, graduation, you know, I've got some stats here. Nationwide, there were 2,425 separate high schools where fewer than two-thirds of students graduated. So we're talking one out of every three students who started ended up not being able to graduate high school. And that's I so quote, low. It's that's so, so low. low. Like, and it's, that's the thing. It's embarrassingly low. <laughs> well, and you're introducing some nuance to the statistical analysis. So if you say that, like, on average, that people often people think that when the that most schools are going to be around the average, and they're not. And there are not schools that are way at the top, and there are schools that are unbelievably low. I, there's actually a quote I was going to share about that statistic. Low graduation rate high schools can primarily be found in urban and suburban areas and within their student populations. Black, Hispanic, and low-income students are largely overrepresented. In four states, New Mexico, Alaska, Florida, and Arizona, one quarter or more of the state's high schools graduate less than 67% of students. See, that's crazy. So those four states, 25% of their high schools are just straight up failing, are just straight up failing their students. They are not able to provide not even an amazing education, but even really <laughs> an education <laughs> to a large yeah. number of these students. You know, and it's yeah. funny for me because my my wife actually went to a high school in Arizona and her graduating class was less than 50%. Less than 50% of that class made it through those four years and w was able to graduate. I mean, I mean, just so, so bad. That's, and that, that is and that's, crazy to me. That and that's exactly what we don't want. We don't want a situation where my wife graduates from high school and she's 
and she's not even in the majority. You know what I mean? It's a you know, it's literally a minority of the students who graduated. Yeah, those numbers I've, are so low. And then I've got another number beyond graduation. In 2016, in 13 of Baltimore's 39 high schools, not a single student scored proficient on the state's mathematics exam. Not a single student. That's insane. In 13 different high schools. In 13 in high schools. That's that's And then you can take it farther. Only 15% of overall in Baltimore of Baltimore students passed the state's English test. So not just looking at those 13, but looking at all of Baltimore, you're only getting a 15% pass rate on an English test. And if we can all agree that we want, you know, I mean, one of the things we want from, 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 from public education is literacy, is, is, is the, <laughs> right. build, the ability to communicate in English. And we can't Right. If you were to get put that. a bare minimum, say proficiency in English would be, would be one of the fundamental things that everybody wants. And this is what we were talking about about last week about outcomes because you can definitely see a demographic trend of these low-income students, these inner-city students, and these black and Hispanic students who are being let down by the system. That's what we're talking about, and that's what needs to be fixed because there are lots of areas in the United States where you know the public education, the high schools, the middle schools, the elementary schools – are doing well, or at least doing doing decent. Yeah, at least and, comparatively, they're doing really well. But the thing is, is just because, you know, just because everyone's graduating in your high school doesn't mean it's true of the high school down the street. Yeah, and, and that's, it's such an, it's such a good point, because I think of my high school, my high school, probably, I would guess the graduation rate was 90 plus percent. Yeah, and so, and so I would have assumed that, that was a norm, a just from my own experience. High school, yeah, right, but but yeah, yeah, and and that would be extremely successful compared to these others. It was just a small town high school, and uh, but you're right that if you're not looking at the right kinds of schools and the right demographics, you it may seem like the schools are doing okay. So many times people are talking about education; they're talking about improving on the details, and. These schools are not going to, and we'll get into this more later, but if you think of how you solve a problem like this and the way and how you can improve these outcomes, what's going to be helpful for a high school that's already graduating 90 plus percent, what's going to, you know, slightly improve things there because things are already going well by the standards of the, of the school is going to be very different than what you need to do to solve some of these schools where where 15% of the students are passing an English test, where in 13 of them, none of them are scoring proficient on the state's mathematics exam. And proficient is not a high level. Like proficient, <laughs> in case that word's not familiar to you, those state tests usually have proficient and above proficient, right? A category where you are exceeding the expectations per, per se. Um, and for them not even to be able to hit this mid-range, not even pass, as Brad said, is the right way to think of it. As you were saying, you know, there, there, there are definitely different, different levels of education reform and different levels of, of issue to even begin with. But as we look at it, and especially as we look at it in these areas that are really struggling, the question of course becomes, what do we do about it? And there's usually two ways to look at it. The one way is to say, 
what are our public school alternatives? You know, and so parents will look at this, but also, you know, legislators will look at this, you know, and so your first option is homeschooling. And right off the bat, people are like, oh, no, wacky homeschooling. The thing is, homeschooling does have a lot of advantages. You know, you're able to completely control the education. You're able to tailor it specifically to each child's need, which is fantastic. Allows a lot of uh, scheduling freedom and flexibility. But there are also severe disadvantages. You know, it basically requires the full-time work of at least one parent which most people cannot do. And on top of that, that parent has to have a higher degree of education and skill in order to effectively teach, right? So people say, well, what if we do private school or we or we hire a private tutor? You know, that fixes a lot of the issues with homeschooling, you know, except for the fact that now, instead of having to have a, a parent, you know, work full-time to teach your kids, you have to fork out who knows how much money in order to pay for this private school or for this private tutor. And then, of course, you know, which brings us back, you know, full circle back to public school, you know, and public school, like we said, has a lot of had does have some setbacks and and those things make it difficult. But and this is what it always comes down to is public school is free and and it doesn't require full time work from a parent. And when it comes down to it, that really makes it the only option for most people, which is why time and time again, when we look at school reform, we come back to we need to fix the public school systems, especially when we're talking about those demographics and areas that are really struggling. Those people for sure are not going to be able to afford private schooling or homeschooling. It's just not an option. And I and I can see that I understand that. You know, it's very different for for some for, you know, a a super rich family to hire a private tutor than it is for someone who's making thirty thousand dollars a year with both parents working. You right. Know, it's just a totally different world. Right. Right. I think you can manage homeschooling in ways so that it uh, it doesn't take as much time. And so that it it a lot of people think they have to have the degree of a teacher to be able to teach their kids at home, but there's actually lots of curriculum things out there and you can actually see like there, there are uh, surveys and things and, and testing that's been done that actually indicates you'd think that if you're homeschooling, then how high your degree is directly correlates with the outcomes. With of how, how well they, how well your kids will do. Right. But it actually doesn't correlate that much. You can actually get a good education from home and you can actually provide a good homeschool education, even if you are not highly educated and even if you're not a teacher yourself. But if you're working all day, <laughs> if you're then in a single just, parent household or you're in two parents and you've got to work, it does none of that matters. How it hard really it is doesn't, doesn't matter. matter at all. It's, it's impossible. Yeah. It's not even open to you. And like you said, private schools, private schools, everyone, everyone knows the private school would be a better option. Or at least in most cases, you can find a private school, if you, especially if you're in a big city that's going to give you better results. Ah, uh, who's got that kind of disposable income? Yeah, Not exactly. the people who are in these schools that we're talking about. Not the people that are, that are already struggling to get by. Which brings us back to reforming public schools. And believe it or not, Reforming public schools is very difficult. Case in point, <laughs> we've been trying to reform public schools for as, as long as I've been paying attention to politics, but, but much further back. Basically, as soon as there was a public school, someone's been trying to reform it. <laughs> and, 
and and that should be scary because it's not working. So so why isn't it working? Why are these reforms not working? I think the first reason is because public school is at least to some degree standardized. And that varies from time to time, you know, how much federal standardization there is, but even on a state level, how much standardization there is. There are set requirements, set rules, and those rules are set on a government level. And like many of the issues we talk about, like this is a really important issue. And the states are going to control the vast majority of this. This is one of those things that people talk about federal politics all the time. This is, this is one that's incredibly important. That is, there, there are some, as you said, there are federal stipulations, but most of it, the vast majority of what actually goes into it is state. Is state driven, which is also why you'll see a large, um, variety state to state in how education performs Mm -hmm. because it is state controlled. Yeah. Even local school boards make a big difference. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, is that you have this standard system that everyone wants to change, but everyone doesn't agree on how to change it. We all have different ideas on the best way to fix public school. And is, and it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. You can't, you can't have 30 different education theories coming in together in one school district or in one state. It just doesn't work. (laughs) You know, one of those theories is going to win or more often than not, none of those theories are going to win and we're going to kind of stay with what we have or make minor changes. And so it becomes very difficult to make any major changes because of that lack of agreement. Yeah. You end up with a school that's where different pieces are based on different theories of what education should be and what its goals should be and what it should look like and how it should be taught. And the result is it's just a mess of theories that doesn't actually head in any particular direction and often is working counter to its own purposes yeah, or to the purposes of other ideas. Yeah. Created a hodgepodge education system. Yeah. It's a, it's an unfortunate side effect of when you need something coherent and you're working in a democracy. <laughs> it often becomes like this. Inherent in that idea are a couple of other ideas, which is that there's bureaucracy. You know, it takes time to change things. It takes effort to change things. There's a natural resistance to change. And there are also special interests. You know, on top of educational theories, there are also special interests. You know, teachers union is one of those interests. You know, the teachers do have a large say in what gets done, and more specifically, the teachers' unions, which aren't the same exact thing as the teachers themselves. No, not often. They're very different. Very different, yes. Another thing, another issue that makes it difficult is efficiency with funds. You know, often we say, you know, public education is underfunded and we need to throw money at it. That doesn't make sense. You know, we talked about Baltimore with their with their 39 high schools where they're getting a 15% pass rate on their English test, they're spending an average of $16,000 per student. That doesn't sound like very much, but that's actually quite high. The average for the country is is closer, it's 12800 which is significantly less than what yeah. Baltimore is spending, and yet Baltimore is below average across the country. And you can take it a step farther. You can look at Utah which spends basically half as much as Baltimore does per student, and yet Utah has significantly better outcomes than Baltimore does. And so if you're going to say, 
if we throw more money at it, then these areas that are that are throwing money at it should have amazing results. And more often than not, as as Dan said earlier, when you throw money at the problem, eh, sometimes it helps and sometimes it doesn't. But it's not it's not a universal rule that if you add more money, it's going to solve these issues. Money is not a miracle cure. And part of that has to do with how the money is being spent. And once again, you get into the bureaucracy and the rules. And so you can't necessarily take that new money and make incredible changes. You can just put the money into the existing system, which doesn't allow for a lot of change. Right. And you can see what Brad said statistically. If you look at, uh, if you look at the increase in spending on education over the years and see if there's a correlating increase in educational outcomes. And there isn't. Sometimes putting money into some districts helps in some ways. And other times putting money into districts doesn't help at all. So the main problem with internal reform, if you want to look at all these difficulties that that Brad pointed out, is that none of them connect the inputs with the outputs. If you, were, if you were to ask people involved in public education groups like the teachers union and these, this is what they'll tell you. They'll say, we need an increase in the input. We need better training. We need higher pay for teachers. We need more certifications or degrees. We need more funding. We need new facilities. We need new equipment, textbooks, etc. We need to introduce technology into the classroom. Or even we need higher family incomes for the students coming here. You'll see when they divide up school districts, they'll try and take, they they won't want to put all of the poor people in the same school district. They want to split it more or less evenly in the hopes that that improves some of the outcomes that seem specifically to happen in, or or at least especially to happen in uh, poor city environments. Yeah. 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 Whereas higher income areas seem to have better outcomes. So they'll try and balance those and they'll try and, and, and put, get more students of that kind in there. In fact, you'll see, you'll see cases where they, they build a new school in the hopes of drawing higher income families to that area of the city so that they'll attend there, thus improving their outcomes. All of these are about inputs. The problem is we're not looking at their inputs. The inputs are not what's important. What's important is the outputs. It's the outcomes as we've been talking about it. What you want is you want better grades. You want students who are more capable on the tests and who are doing well and who are succeeding and who then leave the school and go on and succeed at life. That is how you would measure whether or not things are succeeding. And by changing the inputs alone without respect to outcomes, there's no reason to think that changing the inputs will affect the outcomes. People, and here's what I mean when I say you can, you need to be looking at the outcomes. People need to be held responsible for the quality of their work. If you're not worried about the quality of work and you're not pushing things that improve the quality of work, all the other things don't matter. Uh, people do training things all the time that don't actually improve the quality of their work. There are mm-hmm. certifications yeah. that, that you can statistically show don't actually improve the work. Just like we all know there are classes you take in college that aren't actually going to help you with your job. <laughs> some of them will, some of them won't, right? And the more that will help you actually do something, the better. And, uh, and that's the same with high school, right? Some of the work you do in high school and in grade school, some of it's going to be useful, some of it's not. Just like how if you buy a, if you buy a new building 
or if you have new textbooks or you have new desks for your students, that's not going to magically make those students, you know, score proficiently on their English exam. You know, the thing that matters for them scoring on their English exam is completely different from all of those factors. You know, just because your teachers are getting paid more. And by the way, we're not saying teachers shouldn't be paid more. We're just talking about whether or not that actually affects the outcome. Just by paying a teacher more does not necessarily mean that all of a sudden their students are going to be able to accomplish more. Right. These inputs are actually a step away from the outcomes. And they're useful to the degree they change the outcome, and they are not useful to the degree they don't. And that's why it's really about outcomes that you need to focus on if you want to focus on schools. I've heard people who are against testing in schools. They're against standardized testing. Now, I think there are good reasons to be against the idea that your child's education should be dedicated to a test. Yeah, I agree with that. There There are philosophical reasons, right? Pedagogical reasons, depending on what you think education should be. But you need some way to measure whether or not what you're doing is effective. Imagine trying to improve at something, but you had no way to tell if you were improving. To that end, testing is useful. It's inherently useful. And and maybe people should be doing their own form of testing for their own goals, right? But you need a way to test whether or not you are approaching your goal. Yeah. And if you have no barometer for that, then how do you know what to change? Because you should change the things that are going to change how close you get to that outcome. <laughs> and, and if you change something and it doesn't get you closer, then you can set that aside for now and, and try changing other things. It's, it needs to be... Yeah, however you measure success, there has to be a measure of that so that you can move closer to it. Yeah, precisely. Precisely. Otherwise, you're not going to know if you're approaching it, let alone know whether you're improving or not. And this is where public schools run into big problems. <laughs> Absolutely. No, and, and, and they, they run into a lot of problems because, because right now there isn't really a place in the public school system for outcome accountability. You know what I mean? It's, it's difficult enough to change the inputs, you know, and people push to change those inputs all the time. But in terms of changing the outcomes, there's no place for it because the only way to change the outcomes is you have to let new ideas in and you have to reward those ideas and it has to be it has to be responsive you know what i mean you have yeah. to have teachers who aren't effective and teachers who aren't teaching need to be taken out and teachers who are need to be brought in you have to have educational philosophies and ideas that are ineffective and they have to just be straight up stopped and replace with ideas that are and and educational systems that are effective and that requires a lot of things it requires a lot a lot of things that the public school system does not have you know we talked before about the special interests the bureaucracy you know every single parent who has a different idea all of these things stop you from doing that yeah they make the process to change slight details, let alone big things, really painful and really hard and really time consuming. You want to, if when you think about the things Brad just said, and now you have to change all of those by vote. And the problem is that if you're going to tweak some of these things and see if they have an impact on the outcome, you're probably going to be tweaking it a lot, which is going to require a lot of different votes. And it's a, and, and just to try and do that, 
via democratic law makes the process excruciatingly slow. Excruciating slow. Too slow even in a lot of ways to be effective. And and here's here's one more thing I want to I want to say to that effect. We're we're bashing this idea pretty hard. We're bashing public schools pretty hard. But the fact of the matter is is that when public schools are the option for your child, of course you want there to be a democratic process and you want to be able to have your say and you don't want any one idea that someone else has to take over that entire school and and when you have no other options what we're talking about is not some some ugly corruption of the public school system that we let get out of control what we're talking about is really a natural result of a public school system you need to have a bureaucracy in place to protect us from you know one or two radicals getting in charge and destroying everything right that's the danger that's the risk and it is a real risk if you're trying new ideas some of those ideas might fail horribly and you could you know sink an entire school district in terms of outcomes right and no one wants that we're not condemning school administrators we're not condemning teachers we're not even condemning you know school districts and and legislators for for what's happened we're saying this is just an inevitable result of a public education system is that it's inflexible. Yeah, it's going to become inflexible, which which in places where it works is not a big deal, where it's working well enough or where people are content. Uh, there's a funny poll they did about how people feel about schools and and people think that their school was good and but most other schools tend to be bad. <laughs> And that's, that's a, you got your little self bias there, right? You're my school. Cause I saw it and I know it is a little bit, it's probably a little bit better than average, even when it's way below average. As you said, we're not suggesting any, any bad motives here at all. It's in the inflexibility is in a lot of ways what you want through law. You want laws that change slowly. You want laws that, that are stable. You need the rules to be stable. But that becomes a very poor mechanism for innovation and improving outcomes. If, it, if what you want is to stop people from stealing, an inflexible law that bends only very little is a pretty good law. <laughs> but when you, what you want is a system that can adapt to the needs of millions of different children in millions of different circumstances it becomes a very blunt instrument that's going to do well in some neighborhoods and it's going to do extremely poorly in others. Which brings us, and this and this really comes together here, is this brings us to our solution. And our solution is actually quite straightforward and simple. Allow education to enter the world of free choice, a.k.a. the free market, as people often call it. Or even just the market. <laughs> or even just the market. So the first the first point we want to talk about, and and before we get too far into what we're looking at, is why. And the answer is very simple. The free market operates on the principle of outcomes first. It's all about the product and whether or not consumers want it. If consumers want the product, they buy it, and that product will flourish, and that company will flourish. If people don't want the product, they simply don't buy it, 
and that product fades into the into the blackness and a new product replaces it and that process happens over and over and over again in the free market and on such a regular basis that you don't even think about it yeah, you but, take you take for granted the idea that the things you usually buy are not the first iteration of that item it's the 10,000th yeah, you know, it's exactly. what's happened after it's been improved and it's lasted and it's still there and people still use it. No, and here, let me give you an example. You know, we came out with the automobile and the automobile was this revolutionary transformation and innovation. And if the autom- automobile invention had been a completely government controlled venture, what would have happened is the first company that came out with an automobile would have been granted a government monopoly they would have continued to produce that automobile and people would have said, you know what? This automobile works. It's better than a horse-drawn carriage. So we're, we're, we're pretty okay with it. We're pretty happy with this. Not realizing that if the automobile had gone to the market in a competitive way, what they would have today is, you know, 30 different major car companies, each producing their own type of car and competing and because of that competition, having what we look at as a car today being incredibly different, you know, from a Model T in the early 1900s. And but, so much know. better. It doesn't need to be stated, but Model Ts were <laughs> garbage compared to No, what we exactly. Drive. <laughs> we're talking about cars that could only go 15, 20 miles per hour. But we easily could have settled for that if we hadn't had other options. And that's what we're talking about here with the competitive market is that as soon as you add that competition, you allow for incredible innovation and you allow for lemons, you know, that come in and fail and, and fade out of existence. We don't want a government to prop up a lemon and say, Hey, we know this one didn't work, but at least they're trying. So we're going to keep it. You know what I mean? (laughs) That would make no sense. They get their say, they get their votes on the school board. And they can put in parts of it. Maybe, yeah, exactly. Maybe they can, we'll put their wheels on our cars. We'll, we'll, put, we'll create this hodgepodge of, of bad ideas and good ideas and just kind of mix it all together in a stew. And- so what we want to do is we want to create as much freedom as possible in the area of education. So there are a few ways to do that. And I want to talk about two different ways. The first way I want to talk about is removing government entirely from education. And that idea is scary, and I understand that it's scary when I say that, but but let me explain. Let me defend it a little bit first. The idea is, is that we need the government to do education so that everyone has free access to education so that we can have universal education, and I understand that idea, and I actually like the idea of universal education. I really want everyone to have an opportunity to get an education. And once again, when we talk about those poorer demographics, those struggling demographics, they're the ones who benefit most from having that free education. But, and this is where the idea gets a little bit nuanced, government is not magically creating money for these educational systems. You know, it's not coming out of nowhere. The money is coming from us. It's getting filtered through the government and then it's coming back to us in the form of free education. And so ideally, what we'd like to see is a complete separation 
from the government and education, including the money, so that we're able to have a universal education system that is not propped up by the government, but is instead propped up by individual companies, including companies who go out of their way to provide for those who don't have enough money themselves. Now, we understand that that's probably not feasible right now. We understand that that's a long stretch away, and that's fine. I just wanted to, to throw in my two cents for it, just something to think about the fact that we assume that we have to have the government involved. But that's not the only option. There's another option that is incredibly practical and relatively easy and something we could do right now and something that's actually been tried in varying degrees of of freedom, and that is charter schools. Now, let's talk charter schools, because charter schools, unlike what I was talking about before, already exist. You know, charter schools are a thing now. What we're talking about is just changing them up a little bit. Yeah, I would guess most of the people who listen to this will have heard of them, and if you haven't, you or are familiar with them, and then if you haven't, you've probably at least heard of them. So basically, what a charter school is, it's it uh, it's a school formed based on a charter. <laughs> You're welcome. You know, this is why they pay me the big bucks. <laughs> if you need to phone a friend, just let me know. I'm right here. <laughs> the charter, it, what basically what it is, think of it like a public school, but it's it's built in an area where there are already public schools, and the funding for it comes based on how many children decide to go to it. So you've got, you've got a hundred children at this school, at this public school, and each child has X amount of money attached. We'll say, you said the average was 12,800. So each child has $12,800, and that goes to that public school district to spend uh, on whatever it is they spend it on. A charter school opens up in town. And that child or those, the parents can now decide whether or not they want the child to go to the charter school or to the public school. Now, usually there are limited spaces. And so there's some kind of lottery system, or sometimes it's just first come first serve. However, they decide to do it. You can, you can decide to go to this charter school until the charter school is full. Now, if you go to that charter school, the funding that was attached to your child that was going to that public school district now goes to the charter school. As Brad said, it's a, it makes more sense if, if it were your money and there weren't a middleman there, which is the government, which is sending the money you're paying in taxes to the schools. But, but that's the idea, right? Is that you would attach the money to the child and the child then could pick which schools or you would, the parents would pick which school and then they would go to that school and the funding goes there. So that's basically the, the mechanics of how it works. Now, depending on your state, it may be all of that money is transferred from the public school to the, to the charter school, more likely it's a portion of it. Uh, there's different reasons for that, but, uh, but often charter schools are getting less funding. But yeah. they end up still being government funded. The difference between a charter school and a public school is the primary difference is that they have a lot more freedom over what they can do in terms of how they organize their school. Yeah, the charter school is not government run. It's not government that's run, the, right? That's a substantial difference. Uh, yeah, thank you. And that puts a finer point on it because you've got a private entity, a private group making decisions. And where, where that's advantageous is that it skips all of the problems that we had described above about tweaking inputs 
and not focusing on the outputs. You now have a group of people who can say, this is the philosophy of our school. And this is what we're going to do. And this is what we're aiming for. And this is what success looks like. And this is how we're going to measure it. Whereas before, when that's left to a democratic process, it becomes a mess and it becomes very difficult to change. They can make the decisions that align with the outputs so that they can increase their outputs. And, and more than that, these charter schools exist in a, in a form of free market. And it, you know, and that depends on the area, but ideally and, and realistically, what that means is that those charter schools need to compete for students. If that charter school is not performing well, no one will pull their kid out of a public school to send them to that charter school. There'll be no reason for them to do it. The charter schools do not have a guaranteed student body. They have to attract them. They have to convince parents to send their kids there. And if they can't, then they'll go under. And that's where their their success, their ability to work is directly tied to whether or not they can produce those outcomes, which creates a very strong incentive for them to be outcome oriented. And you can see that in, in charter schools that currently exist where they have a strong focus on that outcome. And because of that, they can have really amazing results. Yeah. It makes all the difference in the world. If you look at a, if you look at a public school and a public school teacher, a public school teacher gets paid a certain amount and it's going to depend on how long they've been there. And a number of other factors, but one of the factors it doesn't depend on is how well they do. Charter schools can do that. Charter schools can decide to pay teachers more based on their performance and to reward them for good performance. And you might think, well, that's going to lead to injustice because sometimes you just have bad kids and that's true. And these schools can come up with ways to deal with that fact. You can, you can account for some of the, uh, occasionally you just have a class of students that are rougher than others or whatever it may be. But that, that doesn't get in the way of some kind of merit-based system. You can, you can take those things into account and you should, if you want to actually reward good basketball players, everyone, good basketball players, good, good teachers. In my head, I was about to connect it to basketball because in basketball, <laughs> you're going to have, you're going to have players who don't win games because or they're, they're on a bad team. <laughs> You've got, you're going to have players who don't win basketball games because even though they're really good, their team is not. <laughs> and you can account for that, right? You can find ways to measure success in ways that account for uh, difficulties and circumstances. So you can reward teachers who can take a bad class and take it further than it would be under the, under the guidance of a different teacher. Exactly. Other things, you can, you can simply get rid of bad teachers. Now, that may seem like common sense. Let's imagine you have a teacher at a public school and... They're so bad at their job that all the kids are failing. Guess what happens at a public school? Nothing. Well, it's going to depend a little bit on the district, but basically in most cases, if they have tenure, nothing. Even if they don't have tenure, it can take, it's often a process of years that costs the school district hundreds of thousands of dollars to fire a teacher. And if it costs you that much to get rid of a bad egg, it's easier just to keep them. And that's usually what happens. They usually don't get rid of teachers. There's a famous incident that, that a lot of people have probably heard about where in New York, it was so hard to get rid of bad teachers that they would send them to uh, what would eventually be nicknamed rubber rooms. But it was, a, it was a building in a school district where the teachers would go there, they would clock in, and they would sit there and they would do whatever they wanted until 
the normal clock out hour of like 3.30, and then they would clock out and they would go home and they would be paid. Because it was easier just to remove them from the class, sit them in a building out in the middle of, away from children, and pay them than it is to fire them. Which is crazy if you think about it. The, the implications of that, I mean, when we were talking about efficiency and bureaucracy, it's it's insane that you can't you can't do anything about it. Yeah, and what's disturbing is that some of those teachers were not there because they were bad teachers. They were there for gross misconduct. That that's awful. That's awful. So another area where charter schools really flourish is we were talking before about how everyone has different ideas and everyone also has different things that they want for their for their children. As soon as you start to allow multiple charter schools, you get to have that variety. Instead of there being just one education system and idea, or even two or three, now you can have six, seven, eight different ideas, even if the ideas vary slightly. You know, some schools could have, you know, an emphasis on on the arts or on on physical education, on sporting teams and things like that, while some schools could have an emphasis on on math and and science and things like that. And you've got You've got your, you know, you've got a child who, who has shown a real interest in that, and you want to reward that and push that, and get them in a position where they can go on and get an engineering degree, and 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 further, you can send them to a school that will help them accomplish that instead of just having to just having that one option. Yeah, there can be a degree of specialization. Yeah, and you get that to a small degree in public some public school areas. Uh, I don't, I, I know it's going to vary a ton from state to state. Um, in Texas, where I'm at, you, you do get a little bit of that. You get, uh, I, I'm the Dallas area and in the Dallas area, you can have, you'll have public schools that are prep schools or public schools that are fine arts schools. But if you get looking really close to these schools, you'll find the differences are really not that big. <laughs> the differences are not that significant because they lack the freedom to really make them significant. Whereas a charter school can be extremely different in the way it approaches things. Yeah, it allows for that flexibility, that dynamic change that allows for them to do to do anything. You know what I mean? It really does. Yeah. So when you actually look at charter schools, you'll see that they shake a lot of the input claims that I mentioned before. The people will talk about how we need better training. There are charter schools that are so much more successful than the schools around them in that same area. And they're often using teachers who don't have a degree. They don't have a degree in the area of expertise. And they're getting much better outcomes. Now, sometimes the degree does help. Sometimes the degree doesn't, depending on what you're doing. But the point is that schools that are outcome-oriented can provide, often provide much better in-house training that actually makes a difference than some degree that's meant to cover all of teaching. They talk about we need to pay a higher, we need to higher pay for teachers. Uh, charter schools can make that happen. They can focus more of their resources on the pay for teachers if that is giving them the results. And if it's not, they're going to be outcompeted by groups that have found ways to improve the outcomes that, that do make a difference. Yeah. Uh, the certifications and degrees, I mentioned that already. Uh, the idea that we need more funding. So I worked at a private school for a brief time. It was just a grade school and, uh, more or less as a, a just kind of helping out in classes and things. Um, though I did teach a class for a while. And one of the things that blew my mind was that their budget was actually much tighter 
than the public school budgets. And their budget's much tighter. <laughs> and that's, that's in Utah where the, where the budgets are already really low, lower than I think any other state. If you go to a place like New York, where the students, there's like $22,000 per, per pupil. And you compare that to what this private school is able to do with something around 8,000 and not all of that went to the, went to the schools in question. You would, it would blow your mind. You'd realize just how, how efficient you can be when you want to. There were times where they would learn things by rote, these students, because they didn't want to waste the money on printing paper. If you're at a public school, do you know how many handouts you get every day? You know how many times <laughs> I've seen things from the PTA? Like I get papers from the PTA, the parent organization for the schools on a weekly basis, at least. And often it's packets. They would, uh, especially with music, the music would always be learned by rote. And these students were not just outperforming public school people. They were so outperforming them. It wasn't even funny. Like there, there was no comparison. No, you've, you've told me stories about, about the, the students that you taught at that private school. And, and those were, I mean, they, they were incredibly well educated at that school. The education level they were getting, their test taking skills were off the charts. Yeah. And the idea that, that funding is the fundamental problem with education. You see what charter schools can do with the same resources. You see what private and schools can do. And usually less resources. Uh, yeah. And charter schools, it is usually less resources because of how stingy the, the bureaucracies end up being and actually giving them money. If you were to give that private school more money, they could do crazy things with it. They would, it would make a real difference because they've already figured out how to utilize every single dollar that comes from it. If effectively. Effectively. You give, you give another thousand dollars per pupil to some of these inner city New York areas. It's not going to make a dent. It's not, it's not even, it's not going to matter at all because the money is already just not being used effectively. Charter schools have a way of thinning out the people who are, are use the money effectively from those who don't. Something that you can't do through the political incentives that drive public schools. And it's that mechanism of competition that we've already been talking about. New facilities, equipment, and textbooks. I don't even know what to say to that. that no, you've already, you've already hit on, you've already hit on that, that, that charter schools only care, you know, really focus on the outcomes. They don't care about the facility. You know, like you're talking about equipment, they don't even care about printing out pages they don't need, let alone yeah. printing out new textbooks or making sure everything is up to date. No, it's about what works. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't matter. And sometimes you do need things that cost more to work. You know, you talked yeah. about technology. Sometimes those charter schools will utilize and will devote their limited resources on getting the right technology, not any technology. I know, you know, a big thing for a while was in public schools was these smart, smart whiteboards mm -hmm. where, where there were these digital whiteboards and believe it or not, a digital whiteboard is not a transformative educational skill tool. You spend <laughs> thousands of dollars to be able to do the exact same thing that you were doing with the whiteboard. And yet public schools are spending money on it. And it's because they want to have increased technology in the classroom. And that's not what we mean by increased technology. We don't mean we should give each student 3D glasses, you know, so when we, when we watch the, the science Google video, glasses. we can do it in 3D. No, the point when we're talking about technology is the resources they actually need. You know, if you're going to have a computer class, you have to have up-to-date computers. 
But once again, it's because we're focusing on inputs and not focusing on outputs. Yeah. And and the charter schools do focus on those outcomes. And so they can be much more effective in the tools and resources they actually do need. Right. And people get this misconception because they'll see they'll see the the prestigious uh the prestigious private school that the the rich and powerful are sending their students to and the buildings made of marble and you know yeah, <laughs> the, these ivy league these, prep uh, schools right yeah. right and they look at that and they go and if we had those resources it could make a difference i'm telling yes, you if, if if our buildings were 300 years old and they had the <laughs> the you know the, the the moss growing on the outside and the beautiful green lawns <laughs> looked looked like it would would not be out of place next to oxford yeah, exactly. Then our students would be geniuses too, but no, that's not how it works. No, and and that's what kills me. Not only is that not how it works, but with a fraction of the resources, you could put those people in log cabins and they would outperform the students at public schools in very nice new facilities. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's and it's because of these deeper issues that we're talking about. It's not because their inputs are better. Now their inputs are better. <laughs> Elite private schools inputs are better. But charter schools don't have those privileges. They're often renting space out of other buildings. You know, they often have yeah. worse schools and mm-hmm. they're outperforming them. And one of the other things that people are going to uh, mention, they're going to they're going to hit on. People who have a nuanced idea of this will probably put these arguments forward. Here's here's one of the one of the big things against it is that they'll talk about it's it's a question of the family dynamics. Um, a two parent home, the child's going to generally have better outcomes than a single parent home. A wealthy family is generally going to have better outcomes than a poor family. And we talked about these disparities, and they often align up with yeah. with racial groups. Success Academy is a group of charter schools in New York City. New York City has a variety of charter schools that compete with public schools in different areas. Success Academy students are not just majority Hispanic and Black. They're vast majority Hispanic and Black. Many of them are 90 plus percent Hispanic and Black. They are located disproportionately in poor areas. Success Academy schools, on average in New York City, have a higher percentage of students score proficient than any public school district. We talked about schools being proficient in Baltimore. In New York City, they have charter schools are outperforming every school district in the raw number of students they can make proficient. Their average income for their students is $49,800. Now that may sound like actually middle class or low middle class income. It's not in New York City. Yeah, New York City is a whole different game. <laughs> it's not in New York City. In New York City, you're poor if you're making less than $50,000 a year. You're very poor. And that's the average. And that average is going to be, I mean, you could have a millionaire who's going to be, whose student is going to a success academy. And that, and that's going to significantly skew the, skew skew the numbers. The, skew the numbers, right. And so you're actually going to have, that, w- that would suggest to me that most students are well below that number. Because it's the average. I'll bet the median number is much lower than 49,800. And they are more likely to be proficient going to a success academy school than they are going to the richest school in New York, whitest districts in New York. 
And the top three, here are the top three public school districts in terms of their income. Their average income varies between 150,000 a year and 300. And they are being outperformed by success academies. Just let yeah, that sink it's, in it's for not a just, It's not just that success academy is doing better than their than the school districts that are next to them in those poor areas and are doing a significant significantly better than their students might be doing otherwise because if that were the case you know if if success academy took these students from a, this poor area and were was able to help them do just significantly better that would be amazing you know with the it same amount nice. of money without better equipment with you know often they actually use the same exact buildings yeah they'll rent the regular space from the are. schools they're, <laughs> they're literally renting space from the same area if they just had you know significantly improved scores that would be awesome but that's not what's happening they are outperforming the top school districts in the entire state including these super wealthy well-off areas that's insane that's crazy. It is insane. And it tells you what you can do with, with very little if you have the right things. Like these, these, these minority students in these areas have a, have a lot of things that people would be like, those disadvantages are going to lead to them having worse outcomes. And that's just the way it is. You need a way, you need a way to address poverty and to yeah, address and, family makeup and things. And Success Academy says no. No, if, if in terms of education outcomes, you don't have to change any of those things. You just have to educate effectively, and that's what they do. You just have to be better at it, and that's it's so. Cr- yeah, Success Academy is uh, is perhaps the best of all the charter school groups. It's the best of the ones that I've looked at, and it's the best of the ones in New York. Guess what? Success Academy can't open up new schools. They can't open up more charter schools. They're opening up in these poor areas and they're, they're trying to improve things and they're, they're extraordinarily successful, breaking all kinds of ideas people held about uh, students. There are 50,000 students in New York City trying to get into charter schools. They're on waiting lists. And new charter schools are not being allowed to open. Or they're opening extremely slowly. Yeah, and so the question becomes... Why is that? And the answer is very simple. It's that there is a lot of opposition to charter schools. And and that's really what we want to talk about that because that's a significant factor. Because we talked about charter schools do exist, but in a lot of areas, they are being hampered at every turn. And it is very difficult for them to succeed because of that. Yeah. The short answer to why that's being opposed is that 50,000 students in New York City represent $1 billion. And people fight over a billion dollars. They they contest where that money's going. And if you're going to pull that from their projects and their things, uh, they're going to be very upset about it. I want to make one more quick point before we go on to, to discussing this opposition. People are going to say that, well, well, the difference between charter schools and students who go to charter schools is kind of like the difference between natives and immigrants of a different racial ethnicity. So if you compare uh, how blacks in America do to black immigrants to America, the black immigrants are going to outperform the black natives, and it's going to be by a significant margin. And there are a couple different reasons for that. We could get into why those outcomes are so different. But one of the reasons is that if you take the ambitious people willing to sacrifice and move and try and improve their lives, you've already taken a group of people 
you, they are they are ambitious people. <laughs> like like you, if you compare yeah. the ambitious people to the people who are not ambitious, the people who are willing to sacrifice and work to to achieve a goal, to people who are not, you're going to get disparate outcomes. So it's not, in a lot of ways, a fair comparison to compare a local population to an immigrant population of the same race. And so what people will say is something similar about charter schools. They'll say, well, charter school students are different. Because, because they wanted to join the charter yes, school. Yes, because their parents are the kind of people who got them on that list to join the charter school. And that, that may seem like a compelling argument, except the studies have been done on that. They tracked the students who were put on the list, but didn't get accepted to the charter schools compared to the students who were put on the list who yeah, did. So if they, because if they got put on the list, that means they're that kind of parent. They're that kind of parent, right? The parents are willing in both cases to put the kids on this list and take the steps to try and get their kid into a charter school. And the kids who did not get into a charter school had similar outcomes to the kids who were in that this the public school they ended up stuck in. And the kids who got into that charter school had whatever it was the outcomes were of that charter school, which are going to be significantly better in these in these places. And the last one last thing, I said that was the last. I have one more quick, <laughs> quick myth to dispel. So if you think that it's just about the parents and that that's just a different way of tracking the parents, it's not. The studies have, have been done on that. You, you, it is the schools that are making the difference. It's not just the parents. No, it's important to clarify. And one other thing is that people look at all of the effects of charter schools, all of the outcomes, and they compare them to all of the outcomes of private school, or excuse me, all of, to the, to the outcomes of public schools. And it looks like on average, charter schools and public schools are comparable, that they're having about the same outcomes. And people will look at that and they'll say, oh, so charter schools aren't better than public schools. Because the outcomes, when you take them all together, is comparable. That's wrong. <laughs> it's wrong for a very important reason. I mean, that fact, that fact is true. That statement is true. But it misses a really important nuance. How many of the charter schools are in areas where the outcomes are usually worse? The majority are. In other words, what you're saying is that if you actually compare charter schools to the schools they're directly competing against, the charter schools are outperforming them. The thing is, is that the areas where we have charter schools are the areas where the public schools are struggling. And in those areas, the charter schools are making a significant difference for the students. That's what you're saying, right? That is what I'm saying. So you, you, it looks like you're comparing like to like when you say the average charter school. But when you realize that the average charter school is dealing with areas that are significantly underperforming, then to say that they're performing similar to the public school average is to say that they are doing way better. Really well. Yeah, yeah. they're doing better they're than doing the other way schools better in their area. Than the schools that they're directly comparable to. No, and a great example of that would be, you know, with my wife going to her school with a 50% graduating class, if a charter school opened up in her area and brought that graduating percentage up to like, let's say, you know, 80, 85%, a lot of people would look at that and say, oh yeah, that's a normal graduating rate. But no, it's not, not in this area. <laughs> not in that area. Not, not for my wife, you know what I mean? <laughs> and so 
you have to look at that when you're considering it. That's a great point, Dan. Yeah, you need to be comparing like to like. And so if you see if the fact that charter schools are, are unevenly distributed in, in poorer areas that they are outperforming everybody else in is going to skew that average number and make it seem like they're that if you're looking at them as a big picture, that they're they're doing just the same as public schools when they're not. They're helping tons and tons of minority and and poor people get an education that's comparable and often if it's if it's a school like Success Academy, way better than than what everyone else is getting. And that's the other thing. You let this play out long term, the results will only improve because schools like Success will outcompete the other ones. And people will adopt the practices of success academies. And so it, in the long run, it's going to be an even more dramatic it's difference. It's going to be even better. And I agree with that completely. So let's go back to why people are, are opposed to charter schools. And, and basically when it comes down to it, I mean, you no know, surprise, as Dan said before, it, it in most ways comes down to money. You know, and there, there are really two groups that strongly oppose charter schools. And those two groups are the teachers unions and the school districts. And the teachers unions, as we said before, are not exactly the same thing as the teachers themselves. Because teachers unions have existed, have coexisted with public schools for a long time. And they have a setup that works for the teachers union. As Dan was talking about before, for, for teachers who aren't performing well, you know, the, the schools can't get rid of them, which is evidence of how well the teachers' unions are doing their job. You allow these charter schools in that have no such relationship with the teachers' unions, and now the teachers' union is out of a job. Not the teachers, because often teachers, when given a choice, will teach at a charter school over teaching at a public school. They'll usually get paid more. They'll have, especially if they go to a charter school that they agree with, They'll be able to teach yeah. the way that they wanted to teach. Which makes sense. And as sense. you have more charter schools, you allow that variety and that opportunity for teachers as well. But that's not the same for the teachers' union. You know, their, their interests don't align. And teachers' unions are incredibly powerful. They have an incredibly powerful lobbying force that they use on a regular basis on the state level to resist these changes. And I can tell you, I've, I've been in, I've been in state, you know, I've been in these, uh, these committee these, meetings, these, these committee meetings discussing bills to make these changes. And these lobbyists, they are incredible. Their ability to, to, to persuade. You would think that these, that these committee members would be like, oh, it's a lobbyist. Of course he's biased. No. And by lobbyists here, we're up. talking teachers union lobbyists. Teachers union lobbyists who are just paid by the teachers union to argue their side are treated almost like expert witnesses, like unbiased expert witnesses by these committees. And I'm talking personal experience here in Utah, and I've, I've seen that, and it's crazy. It's insane. You wouldn't think it, but the teachers' union is, at the state level of government, the teachers' union is, one of, is always going to be one of the most powerful factions in the entire state. Oh, absolutely. If the teachers' union is opposed to a bill, it is very difficult to get that bill passed. In fact, often, if you're passing a bill about education, you will negotiate with the teachers union about your bill as if they are a separate, you know, government entity that has significant sway, like you'd negotiate with, you know, the opposing party or something. I was going to say, and this is not meant to be an attack on the idea of unions. 
This is just a statement of the, the fact of how teachers' unions are extraordinarily powerful. And then, as we said, the other, the other area of, of the other group that's uninterested in charter schools, or at least at the very least hesitant, is the school districts. And very often, the school districts have a large degree of control over those charter schools. And usually how they like to exercise that control is not by banning charter schools, but is by doing a number of things that limit charter schools. You know, they want to place a arbitrary restriction on the number of charter schools. They want to place a large number of criteria on what those charter schools can and cannot do. They want to limit their funding so that they can't get too much funding, limit how, limit how many students can join charter schools. And the thing is, is all of those things, you know, each one on its own doesn't sound quite so bad, except that when you realize really what they're doing is trying to make those charter schools ineffective in terms of them being disruptive, in terms of them creating real change. Because if you can only have you know, an arbitrary, let's say 20 charter schools in the state, and the state has, you know, 1,200 public schools, it doesn't matter how good those charter schools are, they're not going to be able to be effective for the vast majority of students who don't have a chance to be a part of those charter schools. If you create a bunch of restrictions on what those charter schools can and cannot do, well, that's the same problem we had with public school. Now we're going in circles, and now we're just turning these charter schools back into a new form of public school and that defeats the whole point of having the charter school yeah and the power is centered in such an odd group like if you were to say you've got charter schools which are basically competing with public schools for the same funding right the public school loses a student to a charter school some of the funding not all of it usually all of it should go but <laughs> i i can't yeah, i can't figure out why all of it doesn't go other than the teachers union's really effective but <laughs> But some of that funding is going to go to the charter school. And uh, as it should be, the, the money should follow the student. But the group then, in, in some ways, you could think of it like two businesses. You could think there's a, there's a what is a Walmart competitor these days? <laughs> I was going to say Kmart or Target. Well, Target's still doing well. Target and Walmart are right next to each other. Imagine they're on the same block. Would you trust Walmart to be making decisions that govern Target? No, that'd be insane. It'd be insane. It'd be the, it'd be the, one of the worst ideas you've had. Yet, school districts, which are in charge of the district funding and in charge of that, of the public school in the area, often make the decisions related to charter schools within their district. Now, are they going to be fair to that group when every time that, that charter school gets a student, they're losing money? Nine times out of ten, I'd say no. No, the ten, the political incentives just don't line up right there. You end up, you end up with bias. And really, what we're talking about, what this is coming down to, is that charter schools are a form of disruptive innovation, and and disruptive innovation is basically the idea that changes, even awesome, amazing changes, are going to disrupt. They're going to affect the status quo. You know how things are is going to change. You know, and people often react negatively to that change. I mean, going back Especially to our example. Especially people who benefit from the static situation exactly. as it is. You know, going back to automobiles, you know, the horse and buggy businesses were very upset about automobiles and 
and poo-pooed them to no end as as loud, obnoxious, and they had all these seemingly legitimate reasons why automobiles shouldn't be allowed. But really what they were trying to do is to protect their own self-interest. And you can see that same thing with charter schools as this new form of disruptive innovation. And so those who are currently benefiting from the current system, which is the school districts and the teachers' union specifically, are of course going to be opposed to it. And just because they're opposed to it does not mean it's a bad thing. And over time, like I said before, as as these charter schools are given that opportunity to flourish, you'll see that the vast majority of actual people, not these organizations, but the vast majority of actual people, of actual teachers especially, are going to benefit. You know, we we most definitely are not anti-teacher. We want the teachers to flourish and we want them to benefit. And we believe that this system will truly allow it. It will allow them to flourish because it puts them in the rightful perspective, which is trying to teach yeah. kids. Because that's that's what teachers should be focused on and what they should be doing. And what makes them better at teaching kids is good, and what makes them worse at teaching kids is bad. And you can't get that if you put the teachers first. Mm-hmm. You have to put the kids Absolutely. first. And that, that's where the interests of teachers and the interests of the teachers' union inevitably parts ways. Teachers do want their kids to learn. Teachers do want to improve the outcomes of kids. But kids don't pay union dues. Teachers mm-hmm. do. Yeah. And teachers are the and teachers are who teachers unions represent. Unions represent a very narrow group and that's and it's a useful representation, right? It's it can be very beneficial in a lot of ways. But somehow we've equated what's good for teachers with what's good for students as they if they're the same groups. and they're not. Yeah, what's good for te- what's rightfully good for teachers may be what's good for students in terms of what what will make them actually better teachers, what will actually help them fulfill the purpose for which they are. Yeah, a teacher. but those goals and those interests are not the same as the teachers' union. They're not. They're not. They're going to be different. So, and this leads us really to the last thing we want to talk about, and it is the fact that that because of this opposition, even though charter schools do exist now. In many ways, they are so limited and so hampered, as Dan talked about earlier, that they are not able to be nearly as effective as they could be. And they're not able to be nearly as prevalent as they should be. You know, there are a lot of areas, like Dan was talking about with New York, where you have 50,000 kids who aren't just mildly interested in a charter school. No, whose parents have put them on the wait list to get into into one of these charter schools. And who just sit there hoping every day that they hear word that their kid got in because it will make the difference between their kid going to a school where they're almost guaranteed. No, it could literally, it could literally change that, that child's life. I mean, those 50,000 students in New York could have a totally different outcome in terms of their overall success in life based off of them getting into these charter schools, which they could if the system were changed so that those charter schools were allowed to expand if there weren't so many arbitrary limits on those charter schools. If Success Academy could open up another 20 schools, you know what I mean? Right. If it were competing in a different kind of marketplace without government regulation, it would be all yeah, over. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's so effective. Absolutely. It's so much better than everything And that's else. the beautiful thing about spread. charter schools is we don't need to decide as a democratic body what the best charter schools are, what the best ways are to make them flourish. No. All we have to do 
is remove the rules and the regulations that are stopping them and let them run and let them go. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it upsets me. It upsets me. Mayor Bill de Blasio campaigned in part on preventing charter schools expanding. He like deliberately, and he actually deliberately awful. talked about That's uh, awful. Uh, success academies and said, uh, because success academies are using, are actually within the same building as, as the public school, as you said, um, he didn't like that. He thought they were getting free rent. Which they weren't. As if, which they weren't, as if the public schools are getting, you know, as if it's this business that has its own money and it's not some government pool yeah, of, yeah. <laughs> of funding. And anyway, it was just, it was silly in a number of ways. But the reason that he's rewarded for that kind of political behavior is because of the, of the massive power that uh, the teachers union wields and because of these groups that are opposed to charter schools because they know they can't compete with them. Yeah. And because once, once you see that success academy is in one of these low income neighborhoods with all these minority students, 90% minority students, and it is like in a direct comparison, which we haven't made at this point yet. You can, you can look at the statistics yourself. Again, I would recommend Thomas soul on this subject. He has a book on, on charter schools and their enemies. Um, but in a, in a direct head to head comparison, you will see the failure rate of a public school in the same neighborhood, using the same resources in the same building, drawing from the same pool of students. And you will see success Academy in that same position, completely flip the results where you have a, where you have the vast majority not proficient, you now have the vast majority proficient, where you had so many students underperforming in all these levels, and now they've been flipped entirely on their head. The statistics actually reversed in yeah, a lot of cases, which is, where it's which like is 11%, crazy. 20%, and then they, and they flip it. And once you can see that, what do you do when that public school comes to you and says, the problem is we need more funding? Yeah, exactly. You say, no, the problem is that my kid's still going to your school. <laughs> yeah, the problem is that your school is not closed down. Mm. And that we haven't replaced it with something that actually works. And we haven't allowed for these things to. And it's not, as we said, it's not necessarily the public school's fault or any particular person in it. It's a product of a system that doesn't, that can't change and adapt to make better outcomes. No, and I, I liked what you said earlier where we get caught up on things like the teachers unions and 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 these existing things and, and hurting hurting the, the existing schools. But... Education is about, you know, the children. It really is. It's about the kids. Yeah. And we've forgotten that it feels like sometimes. And if we can get back to that, then, then whether or not the technology, the, this innovation, not technology, this innovation of charter schools is disruptive to the existing systems doesn't really matter as long as we can have the success for the kids. Because that's what it comes down to is if these can make incredible changes, then even if it may hurt a little bit, it's going to be worth that pain. And I believe that 100%. Yeah, and it, and it really, and it, you say a little bit, I mean, a really little bit. Um, it, it really won't hurt as, that much. It definitely it's won't a, hurt as much as people say it will. People talk about allowing these charter schools, and basically what they describe is is a zombie apocalypse. Like, it's, it's bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the end of the world. Yeah, yeah. No, you want to see something bad, go look at those schools and ask yourself why they're still there. That's yeah. 
Yeah, that's a go, that daily. Go look at these thirteen failure. schools where not a single student scores a proficient proficiently. You know, go look at these schools that have fifteen percent, you know, passing rates on their English tests. Yes, and you talk about pain caused by change. These people can't afford not to, and they're they're begging for it. You look at you look at the approval rating of charter schools, like polls. We're talking polls here. What do people think of charter schools? Minorities want more charter schools. And it makes sense. If you're in those neighborhoods and you know Success Academies down the street and your because, kid can't get in. Yeah, because because that demographic, black people are the ones who are most getting hurt by the public school system. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true because it seems to particularly fail. All those pieces come together to fail particularly bad in big cities and in uh No, I mean I mean Baltimore areas, Baltimore areas is that Baltimore demographically is is I think it's it's around 63% percent black the population of baltimore so when we talk about these baltimore schools failing baltimore that's who it's failing that is who it's failing you you mentioned something that i want to expand just a okay. little bit before Go we right finish ahead. up because it's because it, it's so profound you said uh, uh you were talking about the focus on the teachers if we focus on the teachers instead of on the students if we if we change that focus um we're going to end up with a situation that's good for a comfortable teaching job that doesn't require much of you, rather than what's good for student education. There's a broader problem there that is happening in every industry. At some point, we decided that the purpose of business is jobs. Yeah, yeah, we totally did. And the did. purpose of business is not jobs. And as long as you think the purpose of business is jobs, our economy is going to get... <laughs> The efficiency of businesses even is going to go down because it's not, it's about the product and the product in education is the child and what they've learned. The product in any business is what drives, it's what produces the money and the results necessary to then pay the teachers yeah. and then if provide our, for If the our jobs. goal was just jobs, we could put every single teacher in the country in a rubber room and disband all the schools. But that would that would make no sense because it's not about the jobs. You know, if it truly was about the jobs, right, right, then take that then just get rid of all the kids. But no, it's not about the jobs. It's about yeah. the kids. Yeah, there's the phrase "putting the cart before the horse" because uh, it's you begin to think that the cart is pulling the horse instead of the horse pulling the cart. That's exactly what happens when you start to put the job before the product. It's not about the job. It's about the product. And without the product first, the jobs become get to the point where they are in the rubber room and the job yeah. is just a job and it's not providing anything. No, that's an excellent point. It's a perversion of what a marketplace is about. So to wrap up, charter schools, there's a lot of opposition. There's a lot of emotion about it, but, and we can continue to talk about all those issues, but when it comes down to it, trying to solve education internally within the public school system is going to continue like it has for the last 20, 30, 40 years. And no real changes are going to be made. And if we want to see real changes, we have to separate education from all of these systems that are stopping us from doing anything. And the easiest way to do that is to free up these charter schools. You know, change the change the laws so that charter schools can flourish. I mean, there are some areas where there aren't charter schools. So we need to actually allow charter schools in those areas and then allow them to flourish. Get rid of that regulation 
and let him run free and just sit back and watch in amazement as as education outcomes just change across the board in the United States. And I, I for one, can't wait to see that change. I think it'll be amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not going to help anyone more than the people at the bottom. To improve something that's already pretty good is very difficult, and you're going to get small improvements. That'll be awesome. And I think the improvements that we can make at the top are going to be even bigger than people would expect. But at the bottom, where you get success academies literally flipping the numbers it on their head. It will be life-changing. It'll be life-changing for millions of people. And that's what we want to see. And that's why we're talking about this. And that's why we're so passionate about it. You know, Because when we're talking outcomes and we're talking about people that are struggling and, and, and these, these negative outcomes and disparity, this can make such a huge difference you know, without having to, to do anything insane, you know, you know, it's so easy, you know, it's almost like just, I can see, I can see it, just, just push the button and make just it flip happen, the flip the switch, <laughs> you know, what is, what is stopping us from doing this? And it's the politics, and that's why, and that's why we have to get past the politics, get, throw away all of that, let's, let's see miracles happen. Hey, thank you all for listening. Glad you could come join us along for the ride. And we will see you all next week.